Well, good morning, church family. How are we doing today? All right, ready to dive into God's Word? Amen. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. Are you ready to dive into God's Word? That's more like it. Now, it's one of the most iconic buildings in the whole world. Ta-da! The Leaning Tower of Pisa. Not to be mistaken with the Leaning Tower of Pizza. That was uh, what you were eating before the Daniel Fast. Leaning Tower of Pisa, one of the most famous, iconic buildings in the whole world. My goodness. Having a little trouble up here. And uh, it's uh, an amazing story behind this this building. It was first uh, started for construction over 800 years ago in the year 1173. And so originally it was designed to be a bell tower uh, for the nearby cathedral. And uh, they started construction on this, but a project that was supposed to take just a few years to build ended up taking almost 200 years to build. There were a few reasons for this. Uh, There were a few wars that delayed parts of the construction. Uh, On top of that, there were some financial issues. And then the third issue was they began to realize once they got up to the third story that it was leaning a bit. And so they decided that they had to get the engineers together to figure out how to fix the problem. And so the engineers got together and they said, here's what we do. We build it shorter on the uphill side as we continue adding stories. And that's what they did. On the north side, they started building it a little taller to compensate for the sinking on the opposite side. But as they added the fourth, the fifth, sixth, seventh stories, they realized the extra weight of those extra stories made the leaning even worse. So 200 years after they started construction, they finished construction. And for the next 600 years, the lean got worse and worse and worse until by the time we got to the late 1980s, it was leaning at some five to five and a half degrees. And they didn't knew it was a matter of time before this thing toppled over. And so because of that lean, millions of people visit this site every year to take goofy pictures like this. You can go on Google Images. People from all over the world go to take all these goofy pictures of this leaning, iconic tower. And so in the late 1980s, they decided we've got to fix this problem because if we don't do anything, it's going to topple over. So they got together a team of 13 experts, uh, architects and engineers from around the world. And between 1990 and 2001, for 11 years, the Tower of Pisa was closed for construction. And they took these large steel cables and they pulled it back uphill as best they could while they dug trenches underneath the tower. And they dug these wells and then they proceeded to drain the water from those wells. And then they reinforced the foundation with concrete and added some cantilevers to try to get it to stay at round about four and a half to five degrees and not lean any further. And so they came to the conclusion after 11 years of fixing this thing that it should be safe and shouldn't budge too much for another 200 years. But they didn't want to make it completely vertical because then all the tourists would stop coming. And so they did all of this work, and you know what the problem was and still is with the Leaning Tower of Pisa? Bad soil. Bad soil. It's built on marshland. And so the reason when they dug trenches that they had to empty these wells of water is because it's marshland, and so the soil is terrible. So the reality is, even with reinforced concrete as part of the foundation, after a couple hundred years, it will continue to lean once again, and they'll have to go back and fix it yet again, because ultimately, no matter how much concrete you put down there, the soil is bad. Guess what we're going to talk about this morning? We're going to talk about some soil, some good soil, some bad soil, and I'd like to ask you a very important question this morning. How is your soil? How is your soil? I need you to open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1. 
Uh, if you're visiting with us today, we almost always will have a message notes handout in your bulletin for you. That's to help you get more out of the message. Some of us learn really well just by listening. Others of us, like me, we need to be jotting some notes down and filling in some blanks to help those truths really sink in. And so we've got those available for you. I encourage you to pull out those message notes uh, and also a pen or pencil to fill in those blanks and, and be able to take those notes. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. Starting in verse 1, we'll start reading that in just a moment. But before we do, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, this is your day. This is your son's day. This is the Lord's day, the day that we lift up our Lord Jesus Christ and we celebrate and worship him and honor him by diving into your word and learning what you want to teach us today. Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us today. We believe that you're alive and well Father God, and we believe that your Holy Spirit is in this place, and so Lord, would you teach us, would you speak to us, and would you have your will done here, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Turn to the person next to you, ask him the question, how's your soil today? Answer him back, I have no idea, but I'll know in about 20 minutes, go ahead. So we are in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from town and village to another, to one village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, we spent about a month in Luke chapter 7 because it's just packed full of some of Jesus' most powerful teaching and some of his most powerful miracles. And we saw at the end of chapter 7 last week that Jesus had an encounter with a woman who was just called a sinful woman who had lived in that town. Most likely she was a prostitute. She had anointed Jesus' feet with her tears and with this very expensive uh, perfume. And, and so that wonderful lesson was taught at the end of chapter 7 uh, that Those who are forgiven little will tend to love little. Those who are forgiven much will tend to love much. And Luke must have had this idea of this woman that Jesus was ministering to on his mind because very quickly at the top of chapter 8, he talks some more about some women who were somehow involved in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Now, back in uh, what the year, I think it was 2014, if I remember right, uh, there was that Bible miniseries that was very popular. Did anybody see the Bible miniseries or produced by Mark Burnett and Roma Downey from uh, Touched by an Angel? That came out just a few years ago. Very popular series that went through some of the key stories of the Bible. And as Christians were watching this miniseries, many noticed that they had a different take on some things in the Bible stories. They took some artistic license, uh, more so in some cases than some of the other Bible movies that had been made over the years. And so one thing you may have noticed if you watched that Bible miniseries was it was very ethnically diverse with how they portrayed the Bible characters. Now, we know that most of what takes place in the Old and New Testaments was centered on Israel, and so you would have very much a Middle Eastern-looking individual. So prior uh, movies that were made about, for instance, the life of Jesus, when they go to film those movies, if they want to film it on location in the Holy Land, uh, they tended to bring in actors from Great Britain because they were portraying this primarily for an American audience, and it's cheaper to fly in people from Great Britain to Israel than it is to fly them in from the United States. And so, you know, in some of the past movies, you had a bunch of white guys and white gals there portraying the Bible characters. We just kind of got used to that over the years. And so when they produced this new Bible miniseries, they had a a different take on things that kind of caught some of us off guard. For instance, when those two angels came to rescue uh, Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, Uh, One of those two angels looked like a Japanese samurai warrior. This was the the picture. We can put out the the guy in front there. He's like a Japanese samurai, and he he rescues them from Sodom. Whoa, that's an interesting interpretation. When they got to Samson, Samson was a big African-American guy with dreadlocks. That was a little bit of a different take when they had 
uh, Samson character. We weren't used to seeing a Samson character like that. Uh, and then when you got to the New Testament stories, the, the mother of Jesus, Mary, was portrayed by Roma Downey, who's an Irish woman. And so it was a very ethnically diverse cast there that they had portraying these Bible characters. And when it came to the scenes that showed Jesus with his disciples, one thing that many Christians notice is there were a lot of ladies mixed in with the 12 disciples when Jesus was having kind of these intimate moments with his disciples. And many of us were kind of caught off guard. Wait a minute, that doesn't seem like it's grounded in scriptural teaching. But as we look at Luke 8 here, Without a doubt, when they did that miniseries, they had a lot of artistic license in how they portrayed things. But I think they were on to something with how they portrayed some of these scenes in the ministry of Jesus. Because right here in Luke chapter 8, Luke points out something that Matthew, Mark, and John don't highlight. As Jesus was going around from town to town with his disciples, there were women who were going with him. He names three of them here. First of all, Mary Magdalene, she of the three is the the best known. She was one of whom Jesus had driven out seven evil spirits. She was the first one to lay eyes on Jesus when he would resurrect from the dead on that first Easter morning. The second of these women named is Joanna. Interestingly, Joanna's husband was a high-ranking official in King Herod's household, and so she was in a prominent family. And then there was Susanna. We don't know anything else about her, but she's the third one named here. And then notice what it says. It says, these three were with him and many others as well. There in verse 3, many others were with him. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And so they helped to bankroll Jesus' ministry. So without them, it would have been much, much harder for Jesus to be able to do the ministry that he did. So very interesting that Luke points out this little tidbit about the women's involvement in Jesus' ministry. Were a few of those ladies with him when he was with his disciples in a boat going to the other shore of the Sea of Galilee? Quite likely. Were they with him during some of those key moments where he was teaching them some things that he didn't teach to the entire crowd? It would seem so. And so uh, interesting to note here that uh, ladies were vital in Jesus' ministry. And those that think that uh, Jesus had a ministry just to men, this is a great passage to share with them because Jesus had a ministry to men, to women, and to children. He was an equal opportunity Savior, wanting everyone to hear the good news and be able to be discipled and grow in their knowledge of Him. Amen? And with that, we move on to verse 4, the main part of our passage today, uh, the parable of the soil. starts in verse 4, While a large crowd was gathering... And people were coming to Jesus from town after town. He told them a parable. He said, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear. Well, this is one of Jesus' best-known parables. It's sometimes called the parable of the sower, sometimes called the parable of the seeds. But I, I think a better name for it is the parable of the soils. Because Jesus doesn't talk much about the sower of the seeds. He doesn't talk about the seed much. It's not like there was some wheat seed and some corn seed and and some alfalfa seed. He, He doesn't talk about different kinds of seeds, but he does talk about four different kinds of soils. So I like to call this the the parable of the soils. Now, what on earth is a parable? Well, the word parable is a transliteration of a, a Greek word, parabola, and we talk about this every once in a while here at FCC. A transliteration is different from a translation because a translation, uh, let's look at an easy example. So in Spanish, the word casa is translated into English as house. So that's a translation. You take the Spanish word casa, translate it into an English equivalent word, which is for us house. How about the word taco in Spanish? How do you translate taco into English? Taco translates as 
Taco. Taco is great in any language, right? There isn't an English equivalent word for taco. And so what you do with a transliteration is you take the other language's letters and you replace them with, in our case, English letters to make a new English word. So in the case of taco, the Spanish alphabet is virtually the same as the English alphabet. The Spanish alphabet has two extra letters, but that's beside the point for this example. Taco, T-A-C-O, T-A-C-O, and O is pronounced how in Spanish? I forget. I think it's just ah. And so you just put those in English letters. Voila, you have a new English word. That's what's done with the transliteration. So one example we look at every once in a while is the word baptism in Greek. Baptism has the beta, the second letter in the Greek alphabet, followed by the first letter, alpha. And so you take the beta and the alpha, and you switch them with English letters, a B and an A, and you finish the word baptism. That's what we have with parable here. They take this Greek word paraboli, and there wasn't an English word that they thought properly translated this Greek word. And so they simply switched the Greek letters with English letters, creating a brand new word, parable. Now, that's interesting and all, but what is a parable? Well, parable, if you break that Greek word down into its two parts, the para translates as alongside. You think of the word parallel in English. Alongside, you've got two lines that are permanently alongside each other. That's what para means, alongside. The second word of that word, boli, means literally to throw or to place. So a parable means to place alongside or to throw alongside something. So in Scripture, a parable is a story or an illustration that is placed alongside spiritual truths in order to illuminate or clarify them. Uh, You can think of a parable as a parallel story. When I was taking Greek in college, they uh, made me translate that Greek word parabolai as parallel story. It's a good way to remember what the point of a parable is. So Jesus, when he taught in parables, was taking a story that was relatable and throwing it or placing it alongside a spiritual truth in order to illuminate that spiritual truth. That makes sense, doesn't it? So the parable of the soils uh, here in Luke chapter 8, Uh, The parable of the soils is a doorway parable. Although it's not the first parable that Jesus told, it serves as the doorway to Jesus' parable ministry. And at the same time, this is important, it holds the key for understanding all other parables. Long story short, if you do not understand the parable of the soils, you will not understand the other parables either. It's a doorway parable. Now, the parable of the soils can also be found in Matthew 13 and in Mark chapter 4. Matthew tells us that after Jesus spoke this parable to the crowd, his 12 disciples came up to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? That's a pretty good question, don't you think? Why do you speak to the people in parables? It's a reasonable question because when it comes down to it, a parable is more obscure than simply just speaking plainly to the people. And so it's as if Jesus' disciples come up to him after he speaks this parable of the soils, and they come to him and they kind of pull him aside and they say, Jesus, uh, you know what? Up until this time, we've been hanging out with you for the better part of a year now, and you've been talking in plain Aramaic. And you've been teaching the the crowd in, in plain Aramaic. And as the crowd listened to you, Jesus, at times your teachings were challenging at times your, cha- your teachings were difficult to live out, but at least we could understand them. Do you understand, Jesus, that when you speak in parables, nobody knows what you're talking about? Uh, the 12 of us, we don't even know what you're talking about. So tell you what, Jesus, why don't you just chalk this up to a life lesson? You tried the parable, parable thing. It didn't work so well. Just push them aside. Let's get back to teaching in plain Arabic. What do you say, Jesus? They were asking, why are you teaching in parables? And Jesus responds in verses 9 and 10 here in Luke chapter 8 by saying this. He says, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. Jesus reveals here 
that there are two purposes for his parables. This is also important for us to understand as we begin looking at Jesus' parable ministry because beginning here in chapter 8, he will hardly ever teach the crowds without using a parable. This begins a a turning point in Jesus' ministry from teaching plainly to teaching in parable. Why? They have two purposes. Number one, parables reveal the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to Jesus' true followers. And secondly, they conceal the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven from those who are not Jesus' true followers. So the two purposes of parables, they reveal and they conceal. Say that with me. Parables reveal and they conceal. One more time. They reveal and they conceal. Now, that second purpose is a little bit perplexing for us. Why on earth would Jesus purposely conceal the truth from the majority of the people in the crowds that followed him? And the answer is, Jesus did this as an act of judgment. Not too cheery, but that's the truth. That's why he quotes from Isaiah here in verse 10. He does it because though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. Chuck Swindoll explains this point really well. He writes, if the word of God is a sword, then the parables of Jesus are its razor sharp edge. Let me hold that quote for just a moment. Remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 6? That the Word of God is called what? The sword of the Spirit. You remember what it says over in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12? It says the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And so the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit. And so with that in mind, Swindoll writes, If the Word of God is a sword, then the parables of Jesus are its razor-sharp edge. Jesus confirmed to his disciples that parables would separate genuine disciples from curiosity seekers, pretenders, bandwagon jumpers, and hypocrites. So if the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, Swindoll's making the case that parables are the razor-sharp edge of the sword of the Spirit. And the Word of God doesn't simply, in a Christian, separate heart and soul and spirit and motives of the heart. It actually can separate non-Christian from Christian as that teaching is heard by a crowd. Swindoll goes on to write, The parables would confound those who did not want to receive and obey God's Word. Yet these same stories would instruct those who had chosen to place their trust in the Son of God. Everyone in Jesus' audience had the ability to understand, but not the desire. It was a problem of the heart, not of the head. Then I think Pastor John MacArthur nicely summarizes it this way. He writes, A parable is simultaneously a work of grace to believers, revealing the truth, and a work of judgment upon unbelievers, obscuring the truth. You with me so far? So a parallel, a parable is a parallel story, something thrown alongside a spiritual truth. This parable of the soils is a gateway parable. It gives us the key to unlocking and understanding all other parables. And the fact remains, in any crowd, when they hear a parable, it will either reveal the truth or obscure the truth depending on how much you want to receive what Jesus Christ really wants to say. And the parable of the soils is going to illustrate and explain this so, so well. So here we go, the parable. Jesus, uh, according to Matthew, when he, uh, Matthew records this for, it, uh, for us, when Jesus taught this parable, uh, Matthew tells us where he was teaching it. He was actually at the Sea of Galilee, and he was sitting in a boat facing the shore. The crowd was so large, probably thousands of people gathered on the shoreline, that Jesus on this occasion, like he had done a few chapters earlier, he crawls into the boat, turns and faces the shore. The acoustics were pretty good on the shoreline, so he was teaching this parable there at the Sea of Galilee with this huge crowd that had gathered to hear him teach. Now, if that crowd had turned around 
and walked up the beach to the top of a sand berm and, and looked out away from the Sea of Galilee inland, they probably would have seen grain fields as far as the eye could see. And so with this in mind, Jesus knew that these folks in the crowd were very familiar with this imagery of a farmer sowing seed. And so he takes that familiarity with this this agrarian uh, society where he was teaching, uh, the society, even for those that didn't farm, they were very familiar with farming. He takes this very normal image of a farmer sowing seeds, and he turns it into this beautiful, teachable parable. In this parable, he says that there were three soils that were bad. There was a soil that was on the path. The second bad soil was soil that fell on rocky soil. And the, the bad soil number three was the thorny soil. So there are these three bad soils, the path, and then the rocks, and then the thorns. And then there's one good soil. It's soft, it's fertile, and it produces a crop that was a hundred times what was sown. Now, in Jesus' day, a, a farmer would carry this bag of seed over his shoulder and as he had this draped over his shoulder, he would probably have that on his left side if he was right-handed. And the farmer would dip his hand into this uh, seed bag, and he would take a handful, and he would toss it out onto the dirt that in most cases had already been plowed. And so these farmers were very good in those days. Uh, they'd done this so many times that they were quite accurate, and they could toss that seed maybe 10 feet out very accurately. And so this scene that was familiar for everyone, Jesus uh, paints this picture of this, this uh, farmer who's sowing his seed. That first seed falls along the path. Uh, he would accidentally bounce onto that hard-packed dirt pathway, and people walking by would trample it under their feet. And uh, what wasn't trampled under feet was picked up later by birds that were looking for something to eat. The second seed would fall on some uh, soil that had some nice soil on top, but it had this underlying bedrock, and so that good soil was maybe only a couple inches deep, and so that rock was underneath the soil. Some would fall on that, and so the roots couldn't dig deeply into the soil. The only direction the plant could grow would be up. It springs up quickly because it can't go down with its roots. There's no way with the rock. The third soil that that seed falls on is the thorn-infested soil that a sower may be throwing the seed out onto some dirt that looks good, but unbeknownst to him, lying dormant in that soil where he tossed this grain seed was also some weed seed. And so as the seed is watered, these thorny weeds will grow up with the good plants and they will choke out the life of those good plants. Finally, much of the seed would fall on good soil. Uh, different Bible commentaries mention different numbers, but one commentary I looked at said that around a tenfold harvest would be normal in Israel. What that means is if you put one good seed in the ground in good soil, as that plant springs up, that one seed would produce a plant that has ten good seeds. That would be a pretty normal harvest in Israel. So when Jesus says this seed planted on good soil produces a crop that's even a hundred times what was sown. One seed goes in, how many come out? A plant with a hundred seeds. So that is a very, very productive harvest that Jesus is talking about here. It's a good quality soil with that fourth type of soil where the seed falls. Now that's the parable in a nutshell. What on earth does it mean? Well, beginning in verse 11, Jesus explains what the parable means. He says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones that receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and a good heart who hear the word, they retain it, and by persevering, they produce a crop. So real quickly, some of the symbolism, Jesus explains most of these symbols here. 
You can fill these in quickly on your handout. What's the meaning of the parable? Well, the farmer is a follower of Christ. Could be an evangelist. Could be a pastor. It could be you. Just a Christian that's speaking out God's Word. That brings us to the second one. The seed is the Word of God. Especially, it's the gospel message. The good news of the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. So the farmer is a follower of Christ. As he sows seed, he is speaking the word of God, particularly the gospel message to those who might have ears to hear. Uh, The soils are the hearts of the different people who hear God's word. So as he talks about four soils, he's talking about four different kinds of what? Four different kinds of hearts. The soils represent the hearts of different people who hear the word. Now, remember that our number one responsibility as Christians is to do what? According to Matthew 28, before Jesus went back to heaven, he said, Disciples, this is your number one job, and it is to to go and make disciples. It's the reason it's banner number one behind me. It's not banner number two. It's not banner number three. The first primary purpose of Christians is the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, to go and win people to Christ and then raise them up into conforming to the image of Christ. That's our number one job as Christians, is to bring people to Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, that that is our number one job, Jesus tells us this wonderful parable, this doorway parable, the parable of the soils, as a way to forewarn us about what to expect when we carry out job number one. When we go and do what Jesus has told us to do, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the masses out there that are not yet a part of Christ's church, As we go out and do that, Jesus wants us to know that it will be received in four different ways, by four different kinds of hearts. And I want you to know going into it, this is what to expect. As you go and share the good news of Jesus Christ with people in our world, first of all, you'll come across some whose hearts are like bad soil. Their hearts are like the seed that falls on the path. Look at verse 12 again. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and he takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. So I want you to write this down. The first bad soil, the path, represents a hard heart. It represents a hard heart. These are the people who hear the gospel message, but they reject it outright. They have hard hearts. They hear it, but they reject it outright. They hear the gospel message, but they never really receive the gospel message. They hear it, but they refuse to internalize it. They don't allow the seed to sink into their hard hearts. If someone comes along and tramples on that gospel seed, they could care less. If you're sharing the good news with them, and once in a while I've had this happen in the past, it's sitting in someone's family room sharing the good news with them, a family member walks by, <laughs> start scoffing, and that person that I'm sharing with, if they have a hard heart, they may jump on the bandwagon and start making fun of it too. What's happening? That seed, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is being trampled on, and they don't care. And what does Satan come and do? He snatches it right away because they would not allow that seed to penetrate their hard heart. Satan swoops down, he snatches up their gospel seed, they continue on through life unaffected, unmoved, unchanged by that gospel seed. The hard heart doesn't understand the gospel because ultimately the hard heart doesn't want to understand the gospel. It doesn't want to be convicted of sin. It doesn't want to change in its arrogance. It doesn't want to humble itself before a holy God. It doesn't want to submit to its rule. So the gospel seed is wasted. It's trampled upon, it's snatched upon by Satan, and there is no trace of it left behind. I wonder, are there any hearts like that in this room today? I wonder, those of you that are listening to the message on Facebook, are there any hard hearts listening to this message on social media today? You're listening, but you're not allowing it to sink in because ultimately you've got a heart issue. 
your hard heart is repelling the gospel seed and you won't allow it to take root. Some that would have a hard heart if you're in this room today, before you even make it to your car in your parking lot after this service is over, before you even make it to your car, Satan will have snatched up that gospel seed because you refuse to allow it to sink in. I hope and pray that if there are any hard hearts today, that you soften it to the Word of God. There's a second bad soil. Some seed is wasted as it falls along the path. The second bad soil is the rocky soil. Jesus explains this in verse 13. He says, Those on the rock are the ones who receive the Word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. So I want you to write this down. The second bad soil, the rocky soil, represents a shallow heart. It's a shallow heart. These are the people who make a superficial decision to follow Jesus. The shallow heart, they make a superficial decision to follow Jesus. It's very important that we spend a few minutes on this one because shallow Christianity is epidemic in our nation today. I hate to say. It's epidemic. Bottom line, some people hear the gospel message and they receive the gospel message very enthusiastically. But because their decision for Christ was shallow, in many cases because their decision for Christ was selfish, it doesn't last very long. They're enthusiastic initially, but quickly they fade away. When persecution comes because of their new Christian faith, they walk away. Time and again, Jesus promised us that in this life we will have trouble. Did he say we may have trouble? He said you will have trouble. That's not, you know, most of you will have trouble. The vast majority of you will have trouble. You'll all have trouble if you follow me. Jesus made that clear. He promised us that people, even family members at times, will hate us for following Christ. He promised us that following Christ will lead to suffering and possibly even to poverty or to death. But how often is this truth ignored in the pulpits of America? How often do we preach what itching ears want to hear, what is always uplifting, what is always rosy and cheery? And and so many churches have stopped talking about things like hell or repentance or sin or judgment. And that's a shame because that's a critical part of God's Word. And it's a critical part of understanding our greatest need for coming to Jesus Christ. Many churches will preach a a cushy, feel-good message week after week, and they intentionally ignore the stuff that doesn't feel good, the stuff that makes us uncomfortable, the stuff that is hard, the stuff that is not politically correct. Have you ever noticed that God's Word is not politically correct? Nowhere close. God could care less about being politically correct. He's much more concerned that you don't go to hell. He's much more concerned that you get to enjoy eternity in heaven that is more amazing than we could ever imagine this side of heaven. We tell people when it comes to sharing gospel seed, we oftentimes tell them that they need Jesus in their lives, but we don't tell them the real reason, the main reason why they need Jesus in their lives. Yes, having Jesus Christ in your life can bring you peace, and it can bring you hope, And it can bring you joy, but that's not the main reason you need Jesus in your life. The main reason you need Jesus in your life is because you're dead. The Bible says we are dead in our sins. And the main reason we need Jesus is not so we can be happy, not so we can have peace, not so we can have joy. Those are all wonderful blessings and byproducts of accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But the main reason is we got to have some life support here because we're dead. Think of it this way. You go into the ER and, God forbid, you start flatlining. You have a massive heart attack, and your heart's not beating. That nursing team's stat is going to be wheeling in the crash cart, right? Let me ask you, why do they wheel in the crash cart? Do they do that because in that ER is a medical intern that needs some practice using the equipment on the crash cart? 
you know, that, that intern, he hasn't practiced much. We need to give him some more practice. Now, do they roll in the crash cart because there's that lady over in the billing department, and you know what? She's looking at your bill so far, and there's not too much to charge you for. So the lady in the bill of billing department needs to justify her job, so she'd like to put down that you were given life support through the crash cart so she can charge you more in your invoice. Is that the main reason they wheel in the crash cart? The main reason they wheel in the crash cart is because you're dead. You're flatlined. You're gone. they got to wheel that in to get you back to life. And it's much the same thing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not primarily to give you peace. It's not primarily to give you joy. It's not primarily to give you any of that stuff. The main reason is because you're dead. And God doesn't want you dead. And so often we somehow miss the most important reason for Jesus when we're sowing gospel through seed and telling him that they need Jesus. Many people make decisions for Christ, but sadly many of these decisions stem from selfish, shallow motives and a false picture that we've painted about the Christian life. We tell people about the blessings of following Christ, but we don't tell them about the sacrifices. We tell them about the joys, but we don't tell them about the sorrows. We tell them about the new Christian family members and friends they'll gain, but we don't tell them that in all likelihood some of their own family members and friends won't want to be around them anymore. We tell them about coming to the cross, but we don't tell them about taking up their own cross and following Jesus daily. Whoever said that our goal was to get as many shallow decisions for Christ as possible? Jesus certainly never said that. Paul never said that. Some churches, it seems, are just into numbers to rack up these decisions for Christ, but we don't ask the question, what kind of decisions were there? Did we lower the... The, the, the threshold for accepting Christ to its least common denominator, making it as simple for someone to accept Christ, having no clue what they're getting into? Don't we have some responsibility as we're sowing gospel seed to at least give them a small heads up about what to expect and some of what to expect isn't cheery? Some of it will be hard. Some of it will be challenging. They may lose some friends. Certainly. Jesus was never into getting as many shallow decisions as possible. He wanted decisions to be real. He wanted them to be lasting. The sad reality is that many people say a sinner's prayer. Sadly, many people get baptized for all sorts of shallow reasons. To get an emotional high. Maybe to convince a a girl to go out with him because she won't date a guy if he's not a Christian. How often has that happened? A lot. She won't date me if I'm not a Christian. I always think back to that movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. I'm going to become Greek Orthodox so the lady will go out with me. Ridiculous. But it happens so often. Ultimately, those whose hearts are like rocky soil are those who make decisions for Christ based on shallow motives. What can I get out of Christianity? What's in it for me? But as soon as hardship and persecution come, these Christians come to the conclusion that following Christ is just not worth it. I'm out of here. And off they go. They're like reeds blowing in the wind. Once it gets a little too difficult, they'll blow wherever the common winds of culture and popularity are blowing. I wonder if there are any hearts like that here today. I wonder if there are any shallow hearts today. Maybe you've jumped through those hoops you were told to jump through and you said that sinner's prayer and you made that statement of faith in front of a church and you were baptized like you were told you need to be baptized. But when it came down to it, your heart has been shallow. and You've not allowed the roots to go down deep because ultimately you serve Christ because of what you can get out of it. And not because deep down you have a lasting love and commitment to the Lord and Savior that you claimed years ago to take as your own. I hope, if anyone has a shallow heart today, that you will go to your Lord and say, Lord, would you take my faith deeper? I don't want my faith to just be about me. I want my faith to be about you. 
I want my roots to go deeper in your word. I want my roots to go deeper in a relationship with you. I've been shallow for too long. I've been stagnant for too long. Lord, would you take me deeper? There's a third bad soil. It's the thorn-infested soil. Jesus says this uh, about the thorny soil in verse 14. He says, The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, by riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. So I'd like you to write this down, if you would, please. The thorny soil represents an overcluttered heart. An overcluttered heart. These are the people who make a half-hearted decision for Christ. The gospel seed begins to grow in their lives, but it doesn't produce anything because their hearts are distracted and are preoccupied with other things. What other things? Jesus mentions three of them. He says, number one, they're distracted by the worries of this life. Worries are one thing that produce an overcluttered heart. So many Christians worry so much more than we should. And those worries choke out our relationship and our productivity for Christ. Number two, he says, many will worry, uh, uh, will be concerned with riches. If I remember correctly, Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. I think he said something like that, didn't he? Many people make half-hearted decisions for Christ because they are seduced away from Christ by the almighty dollar. But Jesus tells us that wealth is deceitful because wealth promises happiness. Have you discovered that wealth really doesn't bring true happiness? Wealth promises to give you security. But have you learned that wealth really doesn't bring you lasting security? It can help here on earth, but it doesn't bring true security. It promises better relationships. But did wealth give better relationships to the prodigal son? Not really. Wealth doesn't bring better relationships. Number three, the third thing Jesus says produces an overcluttered heart is pleasures. Here Jesus is touching on greed. Greed has been the downfall of many who seemingly were well on their way to bearing fruit for Christ. When greed takes root, it chokes out the fruit of righteousness. I want that promotion. I want that higher salary. I want that newer car. I don't care what God says. I want my girlfriend. We're going to move in together regardless of what God's Word says. Our hearts were created to serve one master, and his name is Jesus Christ. And whenever anyone asks Jesus to share the throne with someone or something else, Jesus will not do it. You either serve Jesus Christ alone or you don't serve him at all. I wonder, are there any hearts like that here today? Maybe you've made a decision for Christ, but it was a half-hearted decision. You may look a lot like a Christian and talk a lot like a Christian on the outside, but deep down there's no spiritual fruit in your life. The reason is your heart is overcluttered. Your heart is chasing after too many different things, and as a result, your commitment to Christ is divided. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you, you in all honesty would say today, as I look at my life over the past few weeks and few months, My life has been overcluttered. It's very common, isn't it? We crowd Jesus out with so many things. Worries and selfish dreams and pursuits. And the reason we don't bear much fruit is because we're not devoting much time or effort to bearing much fruit. Our attention is far too distracted. So, there's these three bad soils. The path represents the hard heart. The rocky soil represents the shallow heart. The thorny soil represents the overcluttered heart. And then there's one good soil. Amen? That's the soft, fertile soil, which if you're jotting down these uh, notes on your handout, the good, soft, fertile soil represents an honest and good heart that hears the Word and accepts the Word and produces spiritual fruit that's 10,000% what was sown. A hundred times what was sown. Bottom line, the good soil is the heart of a true Christian who is truly saved. He allows God's Word to take root in his life even when Satan attacks. She remains faithful to Christ during times of trouble or hardship. He offers Christ his full heart and refuses to allow stuff to clutter his heart. 
Christians with soft soil hearts are going to heaven. They are true, born-again Christians, and they are so productive for Christ. Let me ask you this morning, how's your soil? How's your soil? I encourage you today to examine your own fruit. If it's lacking, don't zip up Bibles yet, please. This is where the rubber hits the road. There's a method to the madness. There's a reason we spent a lot of time going through this today. We've got to check our soil. We've got to check today if our hearts are where Christ has called them to be. We've looked at this parable. We understand the parable. There's no doubt of the four soils what soil God wants to see in you. Of the four hearts, there should be no doubt which heart God wants to see in you. So we've got to check our hearts If you discover that your heart is hard or is shallow or is overly cluttered, I urge you to go before your Lord and Savior and ask Him and beg Him to work a miracle on your heart. Only He can do it. But He can't do it unless you give Him permission to do it. And our job, as you're thinking of doing your number one job as a Christian, which is to sow gospel seed, if you're not bringing people to church, there's a problem. If you're not sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, there's a problem. That's our number one job. We are to grow in Christ, yes, but our number one task is to go and share the good news with others because it's the only job God has given us that cannot be done in heaven. Once we get to heaven, it's too late to do job number one, so we have to do it here. And God wants you to understand that you are to look at your heart and make sure that your heart is the good soil today, that God's Word is still able to penetrate, that your roots are still able to dig deep. But as you carry out job number one, He wants you to know that it will be received in four different ways. As you do what God has called you to do and you share the good news with others, you will find inevitably some hearts are going to be hard. And that's not your fault. You will find that as you sow the gospel seed, some will get excited and receive it initially, but your heart breaks that three months later they have no desire to go to church and they're doing the same old things they were doing before they made that decision for Christ. And what has happened is they had that soil with that rock and their roots didn't dig deep because ultimately it wasn't really a sincere decision for Christ. And your heart might break and you might be kicking yourself and blaming yourself. It's not your fault. You just make sure you faithfully communicate God's word and give them at least a small heads up of what they're going to be getting into if they do. Sometimes you'll share the gospel seed and someone will make a decision. But then they start getting worried and they start chasing after wealth and they start chasing after their career or doing all this stuff. And all these things choke out their Christian uh, growth and maturity and your heart breaks and you might want to blame yourself. That's not your fault either. Sometimes that seed is cast upon thorny soil. And sometimes, believe me, as you do what God has called you to do, You will cast that seed and that person will accept Christ and they begin growing in their faith and their old life is left behind them and they walk away from drugs and alcohol and they never go back. And they stop living together with their boyfriend or girlfriend and they never go back until they have rings on their finger and they've shared those wedding vows before God and these witnesses. And they grow in their faith and they get involved in church. And a a year or two or three years later, they're serving in Sunday school or they're greeting at the door. And your heart leaps because you see the soil was so good. When that seed is growing in that good soil, that's not your fault either. That's just reality. And so Jesus is telling you, if you have been sharing your faith with your family, if you have been sharing your faith with your friends, and you're focused on the hard-packed soil, or the thorny soil, or the rocky soil, do not be discouraged that many will begin to accept it and then reject it. Do not be discouraged, because there will be good soil. And just as I pray for you today, that if your soil is a little thorny, it's a little cluttered right now, or if your soil is a little shallow, that your roots would grow deeper now. Just as I pray for you, you continue praying for those that may have those bad soils that initially accepted the Word but have not stuck with it. And you know what? God can transform that soil, can He? 
Do not be discouraged, Christians. Jesus has given us the key to seeing this world one for Christ, and that's to share His Word. And sometimes it will be received well. Sometimes it will be rejected immediately. But stay faithful. Make sure your soil in your heart is soft. And be obedient to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, until He calls you home. I'm so thankful that the vast majority of us have made that decision to allow those roots from that seed to sink deep within our hearts. Keep allowing Him to sink. Keep allowing that fruit to grow. And if you produce ten times the fruit that was sown in you, Maybe today is a great time as we're one week into this 21 days of prayer. As we're seven days into this Daniel fast, maybe this is the perfect time to say, God, I look at my life and I can't deny there's some fruit. But could you multiply the fruit in my life ten times? Let me ask you seniors in the room, have you ever prayed this bold prayer? Many of you as seniors have looked back and you've said time and time again, I've got more of my life behind me than I've got ahead of me. I've lived 70 years. I'm not going to live to 140, so most of my life is behind me, right? Have you ever prayed this bold prayer as you pass that halfway mark in life? God, I know I've got fewer chronological years in front of me than I have behind me, but could you make these remaining months and years vastly more fruitful than all of the years behind me that I have served you? Can you imagine how quickly God would love to answer a prayer like that? God, would you make my life more fruitful than ever before? Teenagers, some of you have been serving Christ for a few months. Some of you have been serving Him for a few years. We look at you and we're a little jealous, frankly, that you have so many years left in all likelihood to serve Christ. What if you made this bold prayer at the age of 15 or 16 or 17 or 18? God, I have a certain amount of time left before you call me home to heaven. Would you make my upcoming months and years vastly more fruitful than any time I've served you in the past? What an amazing prayer. I could go on for a long time, but you guys want to eat in a few minutes, so I'm going to shut up and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for making sure that someone sowed gospel seed in me. Everyone here in this room, God, everyone watching this broadcast, Lord, every single person has been blessed by having someone faithfully sow gospel seed in their hearts. And some of us could testify that when we first heard the gospel, our hearts were hard. We rejected it outright. But you were patient and you sent someone else into our life to sow gospel seed on our hard hearts again. And some of us rejected it a second time and a third time and a fourth time and a tenth time. But eventually, as you kept sending that message into our life through faithful servants, eventually, Lord, we relented and we allowed that seed to draw its roots down into our hard hearts. And you did a heart transplant and you made us brand new. Thank you, Lord. Some of us, Lord, have struggled with shallow soil for a long time. Would you penetrate the rock in our hearts and allow the roots to dig deeply? Some of us, Lord, worry about so many different things. and So many of us have our hearts divided, chasing after so many different things. Lord, would you uproot those weeds and those thorns and allow us... Our, our, our little gospel plants in our hearts to, to breathe and focus entirely on you and to serve you in fullness and in truth. Lord, would you do a work in us? And I pray, oh God, in the days and weeks and months and years to come. And I pray what I'm about to say, Lord, would be prophetic for every person in this church and for this church together. I pray, O oh God, for every Christian in this room, 
that they would be more fruitful for you in the days and weeks and months and years to come than ever before in their Christian lives. And Lord, we look at First Christian Church during a season like this and we might get bummed out that the offerings have been a little low or the attendance has been down a little bit. Lord, we push those things out of our mind right now. And we pray, O oh God, in faith, asking that the days and the weeks and the months and the years ahead for First Christian Church would be more productive than the 94 years behind us. Lord Jesus, would you do greater things through this church in the days to come? Would you lead more people to Christ than ever before? God, we release you to work in us as individuals. We release you to work in our families. And we release you to work in this church. Do your work in our hearts. Do your work in our lives. And all God's people who agree with this prayer say, Amen.